Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us this week. And we're going to cover two separate topics on the program this time. Later on in the hour, the Air Force is in the midst of a pretty serious rethinking of the way it trains pilots. Less of an emphasis on time in a physical cockpit and more use of technologies like virtual and augmented reality. That program, called Pilot Training Next, is also continuously gathering data about the learning process itself as students progress through it. We'll talk to one of the first graduates from Pilot Training Next and one of the Air Force leaders who's managing the initiative. First, though, it's been called the Army's biggest reorganization in the last 40 years. The stand-up of Army Futures Command has been in the works since last fall, the goal being to put all of the various components of the Army that have some hand in the modernization and acquisition process under one roof, bring more unity of effort to that entire process. AFC now has a home, Austin, Texas, where it's just reached initial operating capability. Our guest for the first part of the show this week is Lieutenant General Eric Wesley. He is the commander of the Army Futures Task Force, the team that's been leading the planning and the stand-up of the new command. And General Wesley, thanks for doing this. And I, I wanted to start off just by asking you for an update on where things stand and, and broadly, you know, how much work is left to do there in Austin before the Army can declare final operating capability. You know, Secretary McCarthy said a couple weeks ago at the press briefing that there were already folks in flight as of that moment who are going to be the first people to staff up this new organization. So, so, so what's actually happened so far to, to, get, you, to get you going? Yeah, no, thanks, Jared. That's a good question. It's a pleasure to be here with you, and I appreciate you taking the time to learn more about Army Futures Command. Essentially, we're at uh, initial operating capability now, and we right about uh, the time that you were at a press conference when we announced the decision of the city, we were at IOC. Um, what that means is we're just in the first stages of standing up the command, and in this case, standing up the actual headquarters. And over the course of the next three to six months, what you'll see happening is organizations that are part of the restructuring from across the Army will migrate into the command underneath the leadership of Army Futures Command. We expect to be at full operational capability uh, next summer sometime. And, and how many of those decisions about which organizations are going to leave their former commands and join AFC, how many of those decisions have already been made and, and how much is still pending on, on that front? Yeah, so the restructuring, the decisions on restructuring have been made, and we've got a plan, like I said, over the next three to six months or so to start migrating them over, and I can talk to you in some details if you have any questions on that. The, the harder part on this and the more important part is to start looking at um, how we change processes because we're always want to be very clear that this is not uh, as with you know study any kind of restructuring that goes on in any good organization and moving organizations is the is the easy part it's oftentimes the less important part but ensuring that the cultural changes that you need to make and process and governance uh, changes that you need to make in order to become more effective more efficient, more agile, and faster. That's the hard work, and, and we're in the midst of doing that now. I imagine that over the course of the year, you're going to see us learn, and even in the out years, the whole culture of the organization is intended to continue to change, to remain relevant to the environment. To that point, I mean, one of the one of the standout features to me of Army Futures Command is that I don't know what the total population of, of Army soldiers and civilians that have a hand in modernization, but let's just say tens of thousands. 
of those, the 500 that are actually going to work in Austin are just a tiny, tiny fraction of that. So the, the message from that seems to me to be, as you just said, this is not about moving people and organizational chart structures around so much as it is about changing processes. Is that fair? That, that's absolutely right. What we're trying to do, you know, we're moving as everybody in well known, is, is what is well known is that, the, you know, the world has changed and we've moved from what we used to call the industrial era into an information era. And there's a number of characteristics associated with that, but the Army was largely built within the industrial era, and, and we have a lot of industrial vestiges of the past. And, and so we want to break those norms and ensure that we are relevant for the future. So in, in doing so, we needed to change our behaviors, and that means having different organizations um, pull within the command so that what we create is, and this is, there's two key factors in standing up uh, Army Futures Command. One is we wanted to unify the modernization effort into one coherent, mutually supporting organization where one four-star commander can have visibility and influence over the entire enterprise from starting with the analysis of the operational environment, analysis of the threat, through development of a concept, through the development and arrival at requirements, all the way to including an acquisition strategy. In the past, in, in, in the industrial era, it was more sequential and multiple organizations would touch that. You know, what's characteristic of the information era? It is that uh, technology changes at an exponential rate, one. And two, nation states no longer control technology like they may have in the industrial era. In fact, the proliferation of technology is significant, and it changes very fast. So to have a sequential industrial era approach to modernization means that you're going to get into the development and acquisition of programs of record that will extend beyond the life cycle of the technology. And that's never a good thing. So we want to shorten things up, be more agile, and move and make decisions faster under one command. So tell me a little bit about what the game plan is to actually start to change those processes. Well, we're in the like I said, we're in the midst of that now. The first thing is we want to we want to change our culture, and part of that is changing the organizations and people through which um, units are are reporting. But the second thing is what we've done is we've put together within the task force an ability to look at the really important value streams that we need to get right. We've selected about uh, four of them: um, speeding up uh, science and technology, speeding up experimentation speeding up um, the development of concepts, and then finally the development of requirements. And so we, we've looked at each of those and say, okay, where, how long does it take to develop a requirement? And why, why is it that um, requirements take as long as they do to get through the process? And we start to identify where the longer, long lead times are. Then you've got to figure out, okay, what are some things that we can do to accelerate that? And we're developing a number of courses of action across those four areas, those really important value streams and changing the codified governance process by which we make decisions. And like I said, we've got the, the task forces working those courses of action now, and I expect over the next few months you're going to start to see process and governance changes within the command. Getting back to the point uh, or, or the fact that relatively few of the people who report to Army Futures Command are actually going to work in Austin, how do you think about who actually needs to be physically located there? How do you, how do you make those decisions? 
Well, this is a this is a great question. Um, I mentioned that one of the main purposes of Army Futures Command is to unify the modernization effort. The other one, which you're alluding to, is is getting after a change in culture, attitude, approach, and and so we decided to put the command into uh, one of the more what, what we looked at each of these cities and we evaluated them based on a location that has world-renowned academia. Um, progressive and leading industry, the best talent in the world, and an innovative culture. And, and in this case, Austin was the city that was most optimized for the United States Army. You say, okay, well, only 500, 250 to 500 people will be in Austin. How, how does that change the command? Well, the, the first thing is it's important to understand, you know, how um, startup companies are developing technology for problems. And the, the problem we were facing is, although we have very good labs in the United States Army, they're disparate and out across the United States, oftentimes within a secured location behind barriers, fences, and security. And what that means is we're limiting our access to a, many, many talented people. And so by embedding ourselves into Austin, we've given ourselves an opportunity to engage with young kids with laptops and Starbucks who have ideas that we would have never arrived at or never come in contact with had we not been there. There's a, um, there is a well-scrutinized and analyzed uh, theory called the Allen's Curve, and, and it's very simple. And what it says is that where populations are exceedingly dense, you get an increased amount of communication, and with communication comes innovation. Well, if we're on our installations around the nation, isolated by security, isolated by barriers and fences, it's really hard for us to smash into, as the innovators will say, young kids with great ideas. And there, that, that these, these cities that have innovative culture, they have these things called tech incubators, and that's where a lot of your startup companies are being built, because they've got an innovative culture where there's a high density of people who are meeting in coffee shops over laptops and developing ideas. Well, our sense is that's where we need to be. I can't expect a young kid in college who's got a great idea to fight his way through the bureaucratic challenges of an industrial designed institution the size of the United States Army because of whatever rules, regulations, or even distance that he's got to overcome to get there. Well, if, he, if I can't expect a young kid in college with a great idea to come find me, I need to go find him. So in short, maybe an, an easy way to see this is we're, doing, we're seeking through our Army Futures Command to crowdsource our problems that we're trying to solve by going to an innovative culture and working within these tech incubators to advertise the problems that we want to solve and give multiple people opportunities to help us solve them. Now, where we see promise, where we see ideas that we think are, are valuable, we can pare those down and then we'll do the work to integrate them in either through venture capital um, uh, efforts or through using the Army industrial base to expand the ideas that they've developed into something that might be a material solution. So that's a long description, but the, in short, what it means is we've got to go where they go, and that's why we're putting the headquarters into Austin. And, and that all makes sense, but I, I'm still trying to get a sense for how you make the decisions of who, which precise personnel physically go to Austin, vice staying back in the traditional locations of, of the, the organizations that, you know, the historical organizations that are coming together to make up uh, AFC. 
Yeah, so let me try to break that down for you. First of all, the headquarters is going to do headquarters things. And so there will be a number of people, that, some of the best talent in the Army will be recruited into the headquarters in order to create this unity of effort I talked about earlier. But I think what you're asking is, how do you decide who goes into the Army Applications Lab within the headquarters that will be working with these startups? And, and to do that, what we've done is we've, we're going to develop a number of small teams that are designated uh, as teams that have to solve difficult problems. And the experts within the United States Army who understand that problem, whether it happens to be AI or the development of drone technology or whatever the case may be, we, we will recruit the best that the Army has and in, a, in concert with that go out and recruit talent from, say, Austin or from the University of Texas or other universities around the nation who have expertise in these areas and pull them into the Army Applications Lab down there in, Fort, in Austin, Texas, so that they can be amidst the culture to pull in the technologies that we're looking for. So it will be a recruiting effort across the Army, across academia, and within Austin because they've promised, they, uh, they show promise of being a city with a lot of talent that we're looking for. Lieutenant General Eric Wesley is the commander of the Army Futures Task Force, also the commander of the Army Capabilities Integration Center. We'll come back and talk more about the Army's progress in standing up the new Army Futures Command after a short break. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. I'm Jared Serbian. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, talking with Lieutenant General Eric Wesley, the commander of the Army Futures Task Force. That's the group that's been spearheading the stand-up of Army Futures Command at its new home in Austin, Texas. And General, you said earlier that the organizational decisions have basically been made already, and we probably don't have time to list every single Army organization that's that's going to become uh, part of Army Futures Command, but what are the main ones? What, what, what are, what are the, the names that people would be familiar with that are going to be part of this new organization? Yeah, so let me, I'll name a couple of them. First of all, there's a long history of ARCIC, the Army Requirements Integration Center, uh, that is within TRADOC today um, and has been there for um, for years. ARCIC entirely will move um, outside of TRADOC and move into the Army Futures Command. Um, the second one is RDECOM, or Research Development Engineering Command, which is um, right now under Army Material Command. It will move within Army Futures Command. And then our PMs, our, our project managers and project executive officers that are part of the acquisition will team and partner with Army Futures Command. Um, so then what you've got is ARCIC, which develops not only um, an understanding of the operational environment and the concept that will help us solve the current challenges of the current operation environment. But within ARCIC, those who develop requirements who will work alongside uh, RDECOM and then will work alongside the acquisition people. So then you've got all in, within one command a description of the operational environment, how we're going to solve it in terms of how we're going to fight in the future, the requirements associated with that, working in parallel with prototyping efforts from RDECOM, which can work very closely with those that go out and contract and buy. So all the whole effort of um, 
the acquisition and modernization strategy comes under one command. So ARCIC, RDECOM, PMs, and PEOs all working together. And the, the Army has previously used the word matrixed to, to describe kind of how other portions of the Army are going to come together and help inform everything AFC does. And I, I, I'm not sure I completely have my head around how that concept's going to work. So, for example, would there be other parts of TRADOC besides ARCIC that contribute in some way to what Army Futures Command is doing without being directly in the reporting chain, if that question makes sense? Well, I think, I think when, you know, first of all, in, in the aggregate, we're matrixed by virtue of the fact that we're not moving everybody. So um, there will be a distributed effort associated with the, the, the command and control of the organization because RDECOM is spread out over a number of different states when you think of all the different labs that report to RDECOM. ARCIC, which is in Fort Eustis, Virginia, will split into two and become part of underneath the headquarters in Austin. So matrix in, in that they have to, they'll be, they will be distributed in their behavior. But also within our cross-functional teams, we've got, uh, I'm sure you've heard a little bit about the cross-functional teams. Those, those are the uh, teams that have been put together to get after the six priorities of the Army. And, and, and what we've done is we've put acquisition personnel, we've put requirements personnel, we've um, put uh, scientists and those from the labs all into small teams that are pursuing our most important priorities. And so although they are assigned to different organizations, they it will work together in it, within a team, and, that, and you might consider that matrixed because they come from different organizations. Yeah, and just to pick out that that acquisition workforce example, I, I may be wrong about this, but I think by statute those PEOs actually have to report up through the assistant secretary for the uh, ASALT. So how does that matrixing arrangement actually work there? Because they're not reporting to AFC under this structure, right? Well, that, that's, the, that's the important piece to, that you've just emphasized here. All the statutory requirements associated with our PMs and PEOs will not be violated. In fact, that, that, that's a very important factor that we're very cognizant of. The Army Acquisition Executive will have the responsibility, as he always had, for the supervisory role over the top of the acquisition efforts. And so it's important that we, we start there and say that that does not change. What we're trying to do by bringing them with inside the command and co-locating within the command is to ensure that there's an adequate um, collaborative effort of the PMs and PEOs with those that are building prototypes, with those that are developing requirements, because we want requirements to be informed by uh, the, the acquisition strategy. And likewise, we want the acquisition strategy properly informed by the requirements. And all of that has to oftentimes has to happen and turn on a much tighter schedule than maybe we were used to in the past. In the past, it might have taken upwards of 20, 25 years for a program of record. That, that's not going to work anymore, so we want to bring a number of these parts of the institution or the enterprise that used to work in sequence and enable them to work in parallel so that you get simultaneity of their efforts. So one part we haven't talked about yet is is the contracting workforce, which seems to me like a really important part of this, because you can do a lot of things to streamline the requirements process, um, bring bring folks together under one roof, but to really make things go quickly and efficiently, it seems to me you also need people who are expert at using the federal acquisition regulation and the DFARS in, in new and innovative ways that stay within the law, but 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 still do some new and interesting things. And I just wonder how much time y'all are spending thinking about that end of it. 
we, you know, that's why the AE and the and the PMs and the PEOs are so important within ASALT because that that that's their expertise is to understand how DoD 5000 and the FAR is written such that they can leverage the right acquisition strategy for the right material effort that we're going for. So I'm I'm less concerned about, for example, the AFC commander being a contracting expert and leveraging the experts that seek an ac a broad acquisition strategy underneath the AAE. Now, contracting is important, and frankly, we're, we're evaluating the degree to which you have contract contracting resources assigned versus in direct support. And you know, one of the things the Secretary has said that's important for us to remember from the very beginning is that our first go at this, our first design is not going to be the final design. And so as we learn as we go, we, I can imagine there will be a number of changes to who's assigned to Army Futures Command and who isn't. And, and so the, the whole contracting enterprise is one of those that we're still evaluating. To date, our plan is to rely on the expertise of the PMs and PEOs for an acquisition strategy. Let's let's pick up on that question a little bit. I mean, as we've alluded to, this is this this looks very different from what we're used to thinking of as big um, army major commands, army organizations of any kind. What are the big questions that you're hoping to answer over the next few years at, to inform that future evolution? Yeah. So, listen. The bottom line. I mean, this, this, the the best metric to determine whether we're effective about what we're about ready to do here is the degree to which the best, most capable technology in the form of the tools necessary for our soldiers um, arrives in the hands of those soldiers in time to train with it so that they can continue to be the best army in the world. That That's the bottom line metric. Um, but if we were to start to look at fewer pull away from that and look at some near-term metrics. We, we want to accelerate the rate at which we can make decisions on acquisition efforts. We want to shorten the time from the time we, we arrive at a understanding a gap in our capabilities to developing a requirement to actually fielding a capability. So we can measure the how long it takes for us to take an idea all the way to fruition. And those are the things we're going to be looking at. And, and as I said earlier, it's about tightening up these value streams so we get return on our efforts quicker. Um, there's any number of ways that we can we can measure that. You know, we have a long history of being the best army in the world, and, and we remain that way today. Th this effort right now is the United States Army taking proactive action, some pretty decisive action, frankly, to remain relevant as the world changes. And we know that the world is changing, and so we need to change alongside of it so that when so that we can be be relevant one of the challenges that any army has is to take advantage of the inner war years and ensure that you're ready for the next war and this is uh, the secretary of the army the chief of staff of the army taking decisive action to restructure the army so that we're agile and we remain competitive into the future so what happens from here on out as, as far as the task force itself, the group you're leading? Because I think in my head, I, I was incorrectly thinking that it was mostly just an initial design team and search team for what the site was going to be. But, but what do you all do going forward here? 
You know, um, most uh, corporations, when they go through acquisitions and mergers, will stand up what's traditionally known as an IMO or Integration Management Office. Essentially, that's what the task force is. So the, the work of the task force is, is, is an organization that's separate from the command and control of the organization um, and will continue to employ all that they have learned to ensure that the organization we build is, is built in accordance with the intent of the original design and the decisions made by the senior leadership. So we'll have a staff operating Army Futures Command and the commander will be selected and confirmed by the Senate soon. But after that, the, the change has to continue. And I'm, I would imagine the task force will continue to be in effect uh, for, for months to come. Ultimately, it will be the, the commander of the organization and the senior, senior leadership who will decide when the um, the task force is complete with their work, and then and then normal staff of the of the headquarters will take over that role of, of staying current. But the task force will continue to work uh, in the months ahead. Uh, I don't know when it'll be disbanded, but I can imagine that it'll be around for at least the next uh, three to six months or so. You mentioned earlier, obviously, everything that you're going to do here is going to be within the constraints of the law. But have you have you run across anything yet where it would be helpful to have some kind of uh, change in statute to do everything you're trying to do, or does it seem like you're going to be able to do everything you want to do within the Secretary's authority? I think um, we've been pretty consistent on this, and that is that we have the authorities we need in order to stand up Army Futures Command. We have always believed that there's a lot of stuff that the institution has to do first before we go ask for assistance in with legislation. Now, having said that, I think that you know any organization that is going to remain agile in a very uh, fast-changing world has to be willing in, in the future when appropriate to ask for changes in authorities of the law. But right now, we are not there, and we, we don't anticipate any in the near future. Lieutenant General Eric Wesley is the commander of the Army Futures Task Force, joining us to talk about the Army's progress so far in establishing the new Army Futures Command in Austin, Texas. Another break, and we will switch gears when we come back, talk about the ways in which the Air Force is using modern technology to completely rethink the way it trains pilots in the midst of a severe pilot shortage. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serby. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And as has been widely reported, there is a serious shortage of pilots in the United States, both in the commercial aviation industry and in the U.S. military. One way to help fix that problem, of course, is to train more pilots more quickly. The Air Force is testing out what might seem like some pretty radical concepts to help do that, including one component that you might call telework for flight students. The overall program is called Pilot Training Next. New flight students are using new technologies like virtual and augmented reality to learn to fly long before they get into an actual cockpit for the first time. And all along the way, the Air Force is aggregating big data sets about how they're learning, data the Air Force will use to improve the program over time and try to make it more effective. My colleague Scott Bassioni talked to several people involved in Pilot Training Next. We're going to hear from a couple of them. First up is Second Lieutenant Christopher Hahn. He's one of the program's first graduates. One thing about this program is it's an experimental program, and uh, it actually leads back to why I want to be a pilot in the first place. Uh, I joined ROTC and the Air Force in general because 
I've always had a dream since I was little. I wanted to be an astronaut, and I decided in college to pursue that. Uh, most aviators who go into the to become astronauts are from the military, so I uh, just naturally decided to join the Air Force. And uh, because of that, um, I was uh, got this random uh, call that I was selected to apply for this program, and the fact that it's an experimental flying program uh, really struck with me uh, based on my background and what I want to do with my life. Um, I thought it was perfect. So so do you mind telling me a little bit about the different exercises that you do? And um, I know that there's sort of like these video game type things and, and um, metric uh, reading type things that you go through in order to help pilots in the future train as well, right? That's right. So um, uh, normal pilot training, uh, lots of flights, a few simulators. This whole program kind of flips that over, and uh, we're trying to use have much cheaper, smaller, more mobile simulators um, that we could uh, improve upon as we uh, progress through this program and go through a lot of flights in them, uh, not just at work, but we also have it at home as well, so we could do it literally on weekends or anytime we want, and then uh, take the skills that we learn in the simulators and apply them in the jet itself. Uh, whereas in normal pilot training, uh, you use the simulator just to have a uh, base familiarity, and then you would have many, many, many uh, actual rides in the jet to build proficiency. So tell me what the simulator's like. Is it, you know, like a video arcade when you're a kid and you kind of sit on the, you know, on a motorcycle or in a plane cockpit, or is it something yeah, smaller I, than that? If you, uh, it's not as, as big as a video uh video game arcade, but uh, to give you a little visual, um, it's got the seat, just kind of just like, you know, a normal car racing game uh, you see in an arcade, actually. And instead of a a wheel, uh, you'd have a stick to uh, control the plane. And then uh, instead of the the gears, uh, you'd have uh, the throttle. And also uh, on your feet, you have the rudders itself. Um, In front of you is a computer screen, um, which is a normal Windows computer. And uh, using a virtual flight simulators that anyone can buy. And uh, we also have virtual reality headsets that we put on over our eyes, and we have the uh, headphones to go with it as well. So you said you can do this on the weekend and everything. Is, that, is it open for you just to kind of do it any time, or do you have to schedule times to go in and, and work, or how does that work? No, that's the thing, actually. So what you're saying about schedule times, that's what normal pilot tra- training, uh, that's what people have to do there, which is really, really, that's the limiting factor. Um, in normal pilot training. Um, the great thing about this program is that we could do it literally anytime I want. I could do it, you know, can't sleep at night, I'm going to just hop in the simulator at 1 a.m. and then maybe do it for an hour. Uh, on the weekends, maybe if I want to do it for like five hours or so, uh, which I've done before, <laughs> you know, anytime I want. We have it at home and we have it at work as well. Um, the one at home, I mean, it's literally just in my living room. So, Have, have you been up in an actual jet yet? Yep. So we started flying uh, about a month after we got here. Um, we had all the academics first, and uh, yeah, so we've been flying for about five, four months now, about half the amount of flights that we do a graded simulation. And so how does, how does it compare um, with the, the video game or, you know, simulator? So the simulator itself is uh, it's experimental because um, we're the ones who are testing it out. Um, and from the beginning to now, we've seen huge improvements, um, of course, iteration like two, three, four, five, six, seven of, you know, the same program, trying to get the model uh, more accurate and figuring out different glitches that popped up that we couldn't see before. So there's an 
major improvements in the simulator itself. Uh, what was great about it is from the very beginning, we could see the, the visuals and uh, how to fly the plane uh, very early on. Sitting in the virtual reality, you literally sit in the cockpit. And uh, because we were able to put in so many hours in the simulator, uh, that uh, was the biggest part of this program from the beginning, um, allowing us to be more familiar with the different aspects of flying in the jet. So it definitely helps once you get into the jet, you know, you, you, you feel comfortable because of the simulation. Definitely. Um, I feel more confident and comfortable. And then I think the, my instructor can say how, how well we do perform, actually. But uh, I, I, I do think that we do much better um, because of it. So this is also looking at certain metrics about you as well. So what, what's it looking at and, and what is it reading for when you actually go into the simulation to help pilots in the future? So there's a few aspects on, on how they read us as students. Um, one is these machine learning um, using AI to, uh, they're trying to develop that um, to uh, basically become, uh, act as an instructor and grade us using uh, artificial intelligence. Also, we wear uh, biometrics that we hook up. We just strap on to every day, and it reads our heart rate and you know, all sorts of other biometrics that we don't even know about. And all this data is sent uh, somewhere you know, with times, and like, they'll probably uh, match it up with our flights and simulation times. And they also match our, record our eye movements to uh, see our rapid eye movements. And I think they can measure, measure levels of stress from that as well. That's 2nd Lieutenant Christopher Hahn, one of the first graduates from the Air Force's new Pilot Training Next initiative. We'll come back and talk more about the Air Force's new high-tech approach to flight training after one more short break. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Servu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And continuing our discussion about the Air Force's new Pilot Training Next initiative. Its first crop of students has just graduated, learning to fly not just in traditional training aircraft, but also with a heavy emphasis on augmented and virtual reality. Federal News Radio Scott Massioni talked with several people involved in the new program, including Major Scott Vandewater, the initiative's deputy director. You know, it's uh, it's really interesting to see the Air Force uh, spending time, resources, energy on uh, on really what is is just raw innovation. Uh, you know, some some folks that uh, in what you'd call you know kind of middle level managers brought to the attention to, of our senior leaders uh, some opportunities in the uh, you know, emerging technologies and, and uh, uh, also our understanding of cognition and our understanding of instruction. They said, hey, you know, we're, we're not really applying uh, the, the best of the best as far as what the industry has to offer. Um, can we explore what those things could look like in the context of pilot training? And uh, that, that senior leader um, really said, uh, you know, not only can you explore those things, but I'm going to give you resources, time, and freedom to, to go and do that. And so uh, here we are, uh, you know, about a year later, a year after that idea was brought up, um, you know, those, the, the freedom has been extended, and, and we have uh, come back, uh, hopefully, with some, some useful lessons, both uh, successes and failures. And what kind of uh, dialogue do you have with industry at this point? I mean, are you actively talking to industry to see what kind of technologies they're, they're playing around with, or is that mostly at, at a higher level and then that comes down to you? 
No, uh, that's actually uh, that's a part of this program, absolutely. So, um, you know, we we uh, are interacting with various uh, folks from both our traditional, you know, kind of defense uh, partners, but also non-traditional partners as well. Um, you know, our, our virtual reality setup, for example, is uh, it's the HTC Vive, which is, uh, uh, you know, it's a uh, commercial off-the-shelf, open market, you know, uh, kind of system, and it's working out pretty well for us. We, we um, that, that system in particular has uh, really allowed us some, some tremendous opportunities with respect to instruction. And um, do you mind telling me how, you know, you're going to sort of aggregate this data and maybe what sort of flow and, and um, lifespan it's going to be having throughout the future? Yeah, it's, it's hard right now to really look at lifespan. I mean, there are so many uh, uh, commercial partners which are providing us opportunities in the space. Um, you know, th- there are tremendous, uh, you know, systems that are coming online month by month uh, because not only is the military recognizing opportunity in this space, it, it's, uh, you know, it's a, a tremendous boon for a lot of industries. And so as we look at, um, you know, emerging technologies, I, I expect our partnerships with industry will only increase. And frankly, um, you know, it's hard to predict what's going to happen next because uh, the, the industry is moving so rapidly. And I, I guess kind of going on with that, who is, who is crunching the numbers, right? Because you can have a bunch of raw data, but it doesn't really mean anything unless you can crunch it in the right way and, and implement it in the right way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And frankly, that's one of the more challenging things that we have as a task. Um, you know, looking at things like grades, uh, right, that's kind of the traditional measurement is, is grades. That's a pretty easy task. Uh, it's a subjective measurement. The, the measurement is done by a, a person, by a human being, and, uh, and, and then we just kind of take that as the way it is, and then we move on from there. But um, where we see this going uh, in, the, in the medium term is, uh, you know, having a little bit more data analytic uh, capability. But just like you're identifying, in order to do data analytics, you need to have robust data sets, and you need to be able to dissect those data sets and make sense of them uh, in, a, in a meaningful way. And so just, just like you're saying, you know, we, we need to spend a lot of time uh, looking at how to understand the data that we're, that we're gathering uh, in order to make sure that the conclusions that we're drawing are valid and in order to make those, those decisions you know, based on solid ground and a, and a firm understanding of what the data is telling us. And now I know you, you don't want to necessarily put a bad face on this, but you know, do you mind telling me some of the challenges that, that you've had some in learning how to do all these new things since you're sort of the trailblazers in this, uh, this arena right now? Yeah, and, and actually, um, quite to the contrary, uh, you know, it's important that we fail at this. We, we fail daily. We have small uh, failures uh, that, um, that lead us to draw conclusions about things, and, and those, those failures are oftentimes as valuable as our successes. You know, one area where we are still really looking for a, a clear path forward is in the area of um, interaction with our cockpit. Uh, so right now, you, there's a number of ways for us to interact with the cockpit and flip a switch or, uh, you know, turn a knob and, and things like that. Um, but uh, we found that to be a challenge, that uh, that area of the industry is, is still developing, still emerging, and, and we're looking for the right tool to use for that particular purpose. So we, we have some ways to do it right now, but as we continue to explore that sector, it's, uh, it's not clear to us exactly how, how best to accomplish that, 
And so I guess the, uh, the, the punchline is we had to fall back on uh, you know, existing high-fidelity, high-haptic feedback simulators with the full cockpit layout in order to do certain uh, emergency-type tasks, you know, tasks involving uh, you know, the, the need to reach out and grab a handle and pull it and, and that kind of thing. Uh, those are things that we don't have a, a good way to represent in virtual reality right now. That's Major Scott Vandewater, the Deputy Director of the Pilot Training Next Initiative at the Air Force's Air Education and Training Command, talking with Federal News Radio Scott Massioni. If you want to learn more about Pilot Training Next, check out Scott's story at federalnewsradio.com. Earlier in our show, we talked with Lieutenant General Eric Wesley, the commander of the Army Futures Task Force, about the Army's progress standing up the new Army Futures Command. If you missed that conversation, you'll be able to listen back to this week's full program, as always, at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD or in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.